Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name's Sevraga and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will go through the concept of hedging when it comes to finances. Shout out to all the gardening and hedging enthusiasts out there. I know there's plenty of you that are. I certainly am not one of them. I just have a gardener for my usual lawn maintenance. Gardening, it just doesn't interest me. Now, a special shout out to one of my friends, Dr. CP who's a lawn enthusiast. He loves his lawn, frequently texts me and uh, some of my friends' photos of how good his lawn is and probably should have a side gig as a lawn maintenance person if his medical career ever flops. Now, in this episode, we're going to be talking about hedging from a financial point of view. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways, whether that be your requirements on general business advice, structuring, and use of multiple entities for tax minimization or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out outersfinancial.com.au. So what is a hedge? When you think about the definition of the word hedge, it's like a boundary. You can surround yourself with a hedge. It provides some level of obscurity or security or even fencing around you. It's often used in gardens to border things or perhaps a hedge to separate boundary fences. When it comes to finances, hedging means you're trying to protect your assets. You take a position on an asset with the sole intention of reducing the risk of an adverse price movement by buying another asset. Now, it's a strategy used to limit your financial loss risk. So how do hedging strategies work? Now, I'm going to compare this to insurance, so I'm trying to try and explain this in a very simple way, and I know for you purists out there, insurance is not your perfect analogy, but it kind of works. So when you think about hedging, it's kind of like an insurance policy when you think about it, and it's also got a little bit of subtleties and differences between the two concepts. For example, if you own a nice car, you just bought it brand new, it would be prudent to consider the risks of an accident. So you may wish to get comprehensive car insurance. I mean, if you like your car, it would be mad not to get one. You can somewhat reduce your risk of an accident, but you can't really prevent other people from running into you unless you don't even use the car in the first place, in which case, why did you buy it? But of course, for the protection and reducing your risk of financial loss, 
there's a premium that you need to pay to the insurance company, and that's called the insurance premium. Insurance is basically you transferring your risk to a company who takes on that risk, and as a result, they charge you a premium for taking on that risk. Of course, as a result of all this, the premium you pay is a loss of your potential gain. That is, you could not have had car insurance, for example, and saved up all the premiums and invested it. Now, that's a little bit of opportunity cost, and if you're interested in that, go back and listen to episode 18, where I talk about it. But hedging is not free. So, if you end up not having an accident, you never get a payout. But that's not a bad thing. Because if you get a payout in a car accident, it means something bad has happened to you. Now, most people who take out this hedge, it's just called car insurance. In the investment world, it works very similarly. That is, an investor makes an investment decision which comes with a set of risks. And I've talked about financial risk back in episode 75. Now, to mitigate the risk somewhat, the same investor then takes out another investment decision, often in the opposite direction. That is our hedging strategies work. So, is hedging then the same as an insurance policy? The only main difference between hedging and insurance is that in the case of insurance, if your car is totaled, for example, you're likely to be fully compensated for the loss. In the world of finances, hedging doesn't fully compensate your losses. It merely reduces it. So what's a perfect hedge? And is it even practical or realistic to talk about it? Now, a perfect hedge is when an investor takes to completely eliminate the risk of an existing position in their investment portfolio. This means a perfect hedge needs to have a 100% inverse correlation to the initial position. The problem with this is your gain is neutral or even reduced. So the perfect hedge is more of a theoretical possibility, but in practice doesn't really work that well. When you think about it, cash may be a perfect hedge. It's risk-free, highly liquid, you never lose the money, and up to a quarter of a million dollars in Australia is guaranteed by the federal insurance claim scheme if you deposited in the bank. Now, the problem is it's not really perfect hedge because inflation will eat it away at your returns, if there's any, and you end up losing money overall. So when people say they have a risk-free investment, call them out on that because nothing is risk-free. And you need to tell them that's just BS. To understand hedging, we need to understand risk-return trade-off. And what does this mean? Generally speaking, the more risk you take, the more returns you're capable of making. Of course, this has limitations, so you've got to refer to the recent episode that I did about modern portfolio theory. That is, if you accept a low level of uncertainty, you accept a lower potential return. The problem with this is, it doesn't take into account the following factors. Number one, investors' risk tolerance. Number two, investors' expectations on returns. Number three, length of time of investment. And number four, how diversified they want to be. So to just say take on more risk equals more returns is actually quite wrong. In fact, studies have shown if you're in 100% equities for your long-term investment journey, you may think it's the highest risk, therefore have the highest returns. That's actually not true. It turns out you need to have some level of defensive assets like bonds in your portfolio, and if you did, 
you often outperform the person who took the 100% equities position. The other thing is, when you consider risk return trade-off, you need to work out two things, singular risk and combination risk. What does that mean? Let's use an example to highlight this very important principle. Amy is a doctor who's keen on investing in stocks. She mainly invests in diversified index funds and her favourite is VDHG. Now, I'm not recommending VDHG, I'm just using it as an example. Having a look at the asset split within the VDHD is 35% Oz equities, 26% international equities, 16% international equities hedged, and that's currency hedging, 7% global bonds, 6% international small caps, 5% emerging markets, and 3% fixed interest. Her VDHD portfolio is worth around half a million dollars. Now, Amy is only 38 years old, is married, and has two young children. She still has a long way to go in her investing journey, and she has about $10,000 left over to spare. So she's keen to invest this into a single stock. The stock is from a company called Company XYZ, and their main product is moisturising creams, which has clinically proven longer-lasting softer skin. She believes in this product. She uses it herself. The company is just listed on the ASX at $0.03 per share. She buys 333,000 shares in this company. Notice in this case, the singular risk here is quite high. Amy has just taken $10,000 of her hard-earned money and put it into this single stock. So that's a relatively high singular risk. But overall, her portfolio is $510,000, including a VDHD index fund. And her portfolio risk is actually still quite low. That is, suppose she loses her $10,000 in this company, that would only be a portfolio loss of 2% of her portfolio, and she's willing to take this risk return trade-off. The returns here could be massive, and a downside risk is only 2% loss of her portfolio. That is, her singular risk is high, but a combination portfolio risk is actually still quite low. The most common type of hedging is called derivatives trading. And I've discussed this in detail in episode 56, if you're interested, but let's briefly revisit this concept. What is a derivative? In the financial world, a derivative is a financial contract between two people. The value of the contract is derived from the underlying asset. That is, if the value of the underlying asset changes, the value of the contract also changes. You can trade derivatives either on an exchange or what's called over-the-counter basis. Basically, financial trades happen outside of the exchange, so it involves market makers. There are four types of derivatives. Number one is futures. This is when two parties agree to buy an asset at a set price in the future. Sounds a bit bizarre. Why would anyone do this? The concept is best explained by an example. Amy runs a trucking company. The trucks use a lot of diesel. She decides to enter into a futures contract with a petrol company for a price of $1.60 per litre of diesel. Now, this futures contract expires on July the 30th, 2022. Amy is thinking about expanding her business by then and figures she requires a lot more diesel by then. She's concerned the price of diesel may actually go up by then. Guess what? Ukraine happens, price of oil skyrockets, and by July, price of oil hits $2.20 per litre. In this case, Amy has sealed a deal prior to the price hikes. Amy is used a derivatives contract and the seller has to deliver the diesel at the contracted price of $1.60. 
even though the July price hike meant per litre diesel was $2.20. For her, that's a saving of around 60 cents per litre. That is, Amy has hedged her risk by fixing the diesel price ahead of the time. The seller, on the other hand, also tried to hedge their risk because they felt diesel prices may come down a bit, but they made the wrong bet. The concept stands. Both sides tried to hedge their risk. One side won, the other side lost. The second type of derivatives is called a swap. This is when companies can use derivatives to exchange their risk and thereby reducing it. The best way to explain this, again, is an interest rate example. Back to Amy's trucking business, company Amy Trucking Corporation. She borrows a million dollars to expand her business. The interest rate for this is 4% per annum variable. Now, Rob also has a trucking business, company Rob Trucking Corporation. He owes a million dollars too, but his interest rate is 5%, but it's fixed. Amy gets worried about the rising interest rate environment, so organises a swap with Rob's trucking company. Essentially, Amy is willing to exchange the payments owed on her 4% loan with Rob, whose payments are on 5%. Why would Amy do this? Because Amy feels the interest rate is going to go up, so she feels more secure paying a little bit more now at 5% and let Rob pay 4%. Amy is paying a little bit more for that security. This means initially Amy pays a percentage more. But suppose interest rates rise to 8%, then Amy still only pays 5%. That is Rob's interest rate. While Rob ends up paying Amy's interest rate at 8% from 4% as it's a variable rate. Now the critical thing here is Rob has a fixed rate and Amy has a variable rate. So Amy decides to swap because she feels that the variable rate means the interest rate's going to go up. Now, this is called a swap contract. Amy wants to convert a variable interest rate to a fixed interest rate, so Amy has achieved her goal. Imagine if people had hold mortgages can do this on the same thing with their mortgage interest rates. Wouldn't that be confusing, but also cool at the same time? Now, the third type of derivative is options. This is very similar to the futures contract in that a buyer and seller can agree on the prices of an asset at a future date, but the main difference is there is no obligation to go through with the sale or purchase. There are two types of options, put option and call option. What's a put option? This is when a holder of a stock or asset can enter into a put option contract to have the right to sell something at a future date because they think the price is going to go lower. To highlight this example, let's use a real example. Amy is a financial trader and holds 100 company ABC shares. Each share is worth 50 bucks and she believes the share price will go down in three months to $30. That's her price target. Now she's done her analysis, etc. And that's what she comes up with. She's concerned if she keeps holding the stock, it's a loss for her. So she enters into a put option contract. She may sell her 1,000 shares for a strike price of $50 in three months' time. And you can enter a specific date here if you really wanted to, and that's called an expiration date. Assume the stock falls to $30 in that time frame, Amy can exercise her option now and sell the 100 shares at $50 per share. So she makes $5,000. For the privilege of having this option, she has to pay a premium. Let's say that premium is $200. 
A downside is $200. Her upside is now $4,800. That is, she's used a $200 put option to protect $5,000 worth of shares. That's pretty clever. Let's see what happens to Amy if she didn't have the put option contract. Now, remember, each company uh, share is worth around $50 at the time of her purchase. And she buys 100 company shares. Now, the stock drops to $30 per share. She sells it, which means she only gets $3,000 for her shares and she's spent $5,000 to buy it. So she's lost the potential of $2,000 because it was priced at $50 per share when she probably should have entered the put option contract, but she didn't. Now, let's assume Amy does buy the put option, but the stock price now hits a record $60 per share. In other words, Amy's calculations are wrong. She thought the price of the share is going to go from $50 to $30, but now it's gone up to $60. How would that work? Amy has no obligation to sell her 100 shares at $60. Remember, it's an option. This means Amy still pays a premium of $200 and doesn't exercise her option and lets it expire. Her loss is only $200. That is the premium. Now, generally speaking, the longer the expiration date for a put option, the more it costs in premiums. So it's like an insurance policy. In these scenarios, Amy has utilised a put option to protect her downside risk. That is, she's using hedging strategies to overall reduce her risk. Can you think of something that we all do right now which is very similar to a put option in our lives? Like I said, it's basically the insurance policy for your car, for your home and contents and building, etc., etc. Now, the other type of option is called a call option. This is when investors don't hold an asset but may wish to purchase a call option for a stock or an asset with the intention to buy it if the stock price rises. Of course, For this privilege, they have to pay the premium again. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is again a financial trader and is watching a company called Company XYZ. Each share is worth a dollar, but she thinks the potential is there to have a 10-bagger. She has a price target after her analysis of $10 per share. Amy decides to buy a call option for 100 shares at the current price of $1 before a set expiration date, let's say three months. Assuming this call option premium is around $200. What could happen? The stock could rise to $10 per share. Amy can exercise a call option and still buy the 100 shares at a strike price of a dollar. Her expenses will be $100 for the 100 shares plus $200 for the premium, so the total cost will be just $300. But now the stock is worth $10 per share, so a total value is much higher. Now, Of course, she still has to pay the $200 premium of the option. So she makes a profit. If Amy didn't have that call option, then she would have missed out. And now she needs to fork out the market price of $10 per share and spend $1,000 rather than having the option of buying it for a dollar per share. Now, If she did have the call option, but suppose the stock doesn't rise to $10 per share, let's say it plummets to one cent, Amy still has the option not to buy it, and she lets the call option expire. Of course, she still needs to pay the premium of $200 for the privilege of having this option. In other words, Amy has used a call option as a derivative to hedge her financial risk to mitigate it. 
Now, if it all goes well, it works well. If things go badly, she loses a bit, just the premiums, but not that much because usually the cost to the options premium is not that expensive compared to the whole asset. Now, another type of hedging strategy is called forwards, which is a form of derivative. And this is basically the same as a futures contract, except they don't trade on the exchange. They trade on what's called the OTC markets, which is the -the over-the-counter markets. The problem here is, though, there isn't any price discovery. Remember that anything that trades on an exchange is open and transparent and based on supply and demand economics, whereas anything that OTC forwards markets, it's kind of like offline. And these sorts of contracts have something called counterparty risk. That is, suppose one of the party of the contract does not maintain its obligations and becomes insolvent during the process, then there's usually no resource to recover any of the lost money. In fact, one party can enter into a forwards contract, then enter into another forwards contract to offset the first forwards contract. This becomes tricky and messy, and more and more players are involved in the market. So the forwards market may be slightly risky. So what are the pros and cons of derivatives, which is a form of hedging? Number one, it locks in the prices. Number two, you hedge against unfavourable movement of prices and interest rates. And number three, it reduces the risk and mitigates it somewhat. In fact, you can borrow money to enter into derivatives contracts, which is highly risky, but makes it less expensive as borrowing costs are tax deductible. What are the bad things about derivatives? The OTC markets means it's behind the scenes, and as counterparty risks. Number two, there's always a premium to pay for holding the contract, just like you pay a premium for holding an insurance. Number three is, it costs more the longer the expiration time is, and this is because there's more risk to the parties. Number four, it's very hard to value, and there isn't any intrinsic value. You don't hold the underlying asset, you just buy a contract, and that's really critical to understand. Now, that's a lot to take in, and after the break, We'll discuss some of the ways the average investors, people like me, may be using hedging strategies. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, welcome back. Just another thanks to Altus Financial for getting behind My Millennial Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or you're after advice about buying into, selling or opening your first practice, Altus Financial can help. Altus is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Now, let's get back to the concept of hedging. Uh, Now that we know what hedging is and we've looked at some of the complex ways that perhaps advanced investors may be using hedging strategies, let's look at some of the types of hedging we may be using as average investors in addition to all those complex ways. Now, for people that know me, I'm not a complicated person. I want to keep things as simple as possible. Number one, diversification. This is one of the most common hedging strategies that average investors use, including me. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket is a common adage, but no one ever thinks about the strategy as a form of hedge. When you come into the core definition of hedging, something an investor does to limit their financial losses, the diversification is exactly that, without the complexities of derivatives trading. Essentially, when you diversify your investments, you invest in assets which move in various directions based on market conditions. Now, those market conditions may or may not be inversely correlated, and diversification is certainly not a perfect hedge. Let's use an example of diversification as a hedging strategy. Amy is a dental technician and has just started her investing journey at age 40. She has $10,000 to invest into the stock market. She figures she's not an active investor and prefers a passive investing strategy. Rather than buying individual stocks, she prefers index funds. She also prefers a fund which incorporates a global set of companies. She researches the ETF VGS, which is Vanguard MSCI Index International Shares ETF. Again, not a recommendation, just an example to highlight a principle. It's got an expense ratio of 0.18% per annum and currently trading at $86.19 at the time of recording back in June 2022. It's domiciled in Australia, which means she doesn't need to fill out those W8 Ben forms, and the ETF covers most global sectors. It also is invested across the globe. Remember, she does note most of the fund is focused on North American markets, which is around 70% of the fund, but she doesn't mind about this. Amy has used ultimate diversification to limit her financial losses, and this strategy is a form of hedging. Number two, arbitrage. I've done a specific episode on arbitrage, especially episode 26. If you're interested, that was way back in my past life as DevRocker Personal Finance. And I'll talk about the various types of arbitrage. This is when you can buy something at one price and immediately sell it at another price. Usually the two sales markets are very different. A classic example is going to the local op shop and finding something really interesting at a bargain basement price, then selling it online for a profit. In fact, I was in a situation like this recently where in an op shop was selling an antique Tiffin carrier. Some listeners may have seen my post about this on a Facebook forum. That was about 10 bucks. That was the cost of the Tiffin carrier. But of course, I didn't buy it, only to realise something similar is being sold for $160 on eBay. 
That's a form of arbitrage. I could have bought it for 10 bucks and immediately sold it online for $160. Now, there's various types of arbitrage to learn about. Number three, dollar cost averaging, or so-called averaging down. Have you heard of investors saying, I'm averaging down? What does that mean? It means in a downward market, regular investments brings down the average cost of the unit per share you're buying. In an upward market, regular investment brings up the average cost of units or share that you're buying. And as the stock market has now entered at the time of recording in June 2022, bear market territory, there is a lot of talk about averaging down. It makes sense. When things are cheaper, keep investing. This way, your average cost is reduced. And if the market rises again, you've just made money for sticking the course. Now, by the time this episode releases, I don't know what the stock market's going to do between at the time of recording, which is June 2022, to the time that it's going to be released, which is probably going to be sometime in August. So if you've just not paid attention to the market and just kept investing during this time, and the market in August rises, you've just made money. If the market in August doesn't rise, stays flat, or goes down, yeah, you might have lost money, but you've only lost money if you sell anything. I dollar cost average, and I love this principle. Let's use an example to highlight this particular concept. Amy is an avid investor. She buys Microsoft on 3rd of January 2022 at a price of $334 per share. She keeps buying every single month since then. And these are the prices she purchases. 10 stocks on the 3rd of Jan at $334 per share. That's a total of $3,340. 10 stocks at the 3rd of February 2022 at around $301. That's a total cost of $3,010 for that parcel of shares. And that keeps going on and on. She buys at 3rd of March at $295, the 4th of April at $314, the 3rd of May at $277 and the 3rd of June at $270. Over the last six months then, in total, she has 60 shares of Microsoft at a total cost of $17,910 with an average per share price of $298.50. Notice when she first bought Microsoft, it was $334 per share, but an averaging down cost has brought it down to $298.50 because she's been consistent and she's been doing it over the six months. In this case, Microsoft stock need not go up to $334 for Amy to make back some of her money. That's the advantage of a concept of averaging down. In a downward market, dollar cost averaging just works like a treat. That is, if you spend $1,000 in a downward market, you get more units and shares for that when compared to investing $1,000 in an upward market, where you get less units and shares for that. Number three, simply staying in cash. Now, I've discussed this previously. People think staying in cash is not hedging, but it kind of is. I will wait until the market bottoms. Well, while you wait, you may miss out on the dividends, the gains, and you may actually miss the market bottom. Staying in cash has a cost, and that cost is all of the above, but also inflation. Refer to episodes 202, 133, and 27 to learn more about inflation as a concept. It's more relevant in 2022 than possibly in your life. Number four, short selling. I've done a detailed episode on the concept in episode 72. This is when investors may choose to sell stock 
and then repurchase it at a later date when they think the stock will be priced less. So if you're anticipating a market crash, then short selling might work out better for you as a hedging strategy. This works well in a bear market, of course, but you need to be able to predict it before it happens. Let's use an example to highlight short selling. Amy is an avid investor, and in January 2022, she thinks Ukraine is going to go into crisis, which means supply chain issues, oil and gas shortages, and of course, with China still in lockdown, it's ripe for a global inflationary pressure and therefore risk of recession. Amy's pretty smart. She decides to short the market on the whole and thinks things will get worse. Basically, when she does this, she sells a particular stock of ETF, or ETF in total, in January 2022. She pays a premium for doing so because she doesn't actually own the ETF in the first place. She kind of like borrows it from someone who owns it. And for the privilege of doing that, she pays a premium for that borrowing costs. Then in six months time, when the market tanks, she repurchases it and replaces it on the shelf, so to speak, gives it back to the person that she borrowed it from. And she pockets the difference. So Amy sold company ABC stock at $50 per share. Let's say she bought 100,000 shares. The total money she got in her bank account by selling those was $5 million. Remember, she never owned those shares. She borrowed them and she sold them. Then six months later, she repurchases the same 100,000 shares for, say, 25 bucks at a cost of $2.5 million. So she takes $2.5 million from her bank account and she buys those shares. This means she's made a cool profit of $2.5 million on short-selling the trade minus any expenses, premiums, and trading fees. It's important to understand when you short um, short sell a stock or an asset, your losses are potentially unlimited. Why? Well, in the previous example, supposing Amy's company ABC share rose to $100 per share, remember, she still has to repurchase the 100,000 shares back to replace it on the shelf. This means she has to spend $10 million to repurchase the shares. She only has $5 million on hand in her bank account, which means she needs to find another $5 million. She's now at a loss of $5 million, which is very hard to recover from in most cases. And sometimes avid investors may borrow money and that's how they get into trouble. So if things go wrongly in short selling, you get screwed big time. I don't short sell. I hold long positions on my index funds. Now, the other way to hedge is called inversely correlated ETFs. This is when you invest in ETFs which are inversely correlated to the market. If the market drops, the ETF rises in value. If the market rises, the ETF drops in value. Now, this is okay for short-term traders, but over the long term, if you zoom out, markets have gone up most of the time. So inversely correlated ETFs would have done bad long-term. Again, a dangerous move for the average investor who just wants to get ahead over the long-term. What about buying more value stocks and ETFs rather than growth? That's another form of hedge. Now, this is something long-term investors often do. They tend to stick to tried and tested methods of making money. Investors look at the fundamentals of the company, the business model, the competitive advantage, corporate governance, management of the company, executive profiles, balance sheet, intrinsic value, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So buying more value stocks and ETFs is a form of hedging. So what's the bottom line in all this? Look, most people don't use complex derivatives or hedging strategies. I certainly don't. And I'm guaranteeing you that most people who listen to this podcast or this channel 
probably don't either. Most people don't short sell. Most people don't buy inversely correlated ETFs. The most common form of hedging average investors will probably use is diversification, dollar cost averaging, and perhaps some arbitrage. I certainly go anywhere near short selling. I don't do derivatives trading. I'm not changing all of my portfolio to cash. I keep it really simple. Every week, a base 20% of my wage goes into the index portfolio, and that's it. Those units produce dividends, which are auto-invested, and I felt for me this process is simple and has worked for me over the last 12 years as being an investor. So I don't see much reason why it wouldn't work for me in the long term. Not to mention, I still have decades of investing left over for me. So if the market's low, I'm getting more units for the same amount of money, which is why I think dollar cost averaging strategy is a mathematical genius. One we should all appreciate and understand. That's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more positive reviews and ratings you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.